Well, first I want to thank you for being here. Um, you are in a busy day today, um, and you've had a busy few weeks because recently you decided to open your own brokerage, and that has been a lot of work as I take it. Yes, it is. Um, for people that don't know you, um, I'm talking today with April Rager, and April Rager uh, recently opened Cowell Banker, the Rager Group, and you guys are based out of Winter Garden, Florida? Oakland. It's Oakland, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's kind of strange, right? The town of Oakland, like even people that have lived in Central Florida forever, they don't know that there's a town of Oakland, but it's basically that area of downtown Winter Garden. So right. basically, if you've been to the brewery to drink some beer, you were a few miles away from your new office. Right. It's a little less than three miles from there. How long have you been in real estate? Since 2002. Since 2002. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about your trajectory. What did you do immediately before real estate and how did you decide that you wanted to pursue a career in real estate? I was a stay-at-home mom and my husband was a um, custom home builder and framer around town, so the business was good. Um, then I went into uh, do nails, so manicures, pedicures, and that was probably surprise people that that's what I did. But that's how I met someone as a client that had a Century 21 office, and she offered me an opportunity as an office manager, and I was happy to take it. I'd always wanted to be into real, into real estate in some way, shape, or form. Never thought I would be selling ever. I was totally content sitting behind the desk, encouraging the agents, putting files together, and organizing um, the office per se. I was more of a mom and that was what I was comfortable with. And that's probably where my, on my disc profile, I would have been content. Mm-hmm. And, um, one day things changed and I ended up leaving that century 21 office and went to Cobble banker, Tony Hubbard and begged him to take me with no real estate experience and a few other agents that were willing to come along. So that's how I got my start. Very good. And so your personality is not natural for the stereotypical real estate agent. And when I say the stereotypical real estate agent, I mean like the super salesy, you know, let's go door knocking, let's go cold calling um, type of agent. That's not your natural personality, right? No. And here we are, you know, however many years later, and you have a tremendously successful business for many years now. Thank you. Um, what do you attribute the fact that you have been so successful yet your personality doesn't really line up with what's su- what it's supposed to be? Hmm. Kind of that saying that um, she believed she could, so she did. Um, I almost take someone saying you can't do that or that can't be done as a challenge, not as a real statement to, to make. So... I just tried to find things that were more suitable for me. Instead of prospecting, calling people from 9 to 11, I would be looking for ways um, to put my profile, you know, places on the Internet to put my profile online where they tell you to have your niche and stay in your lane, stay in your neighborhood, stay here. I thought, well, why would only that neighborhood want to know about me? I think the whole world should know about me because I'm so awesome. Not really, but... You are. Yeah, well, thank you. But I felt like spending the same amount of money to tell 300 homeowners about me was not really to my benefit when there were, you know, four other realtors that live in the neighborhood and I'm competing with them. I could make it broader and appeal to the masses. 
I grew up in Claremont, so I really did not want to have that. Oh, hey, Mario. Oh, dear. Yes, I just saw you at the grocery store. We went to high school together. That's awkward for me. So I decided to kind of put it out there, and I really started working with, I hate to say strangers, because most of them are now friends, and and they feel like family. But I just, I started buying leads online and putting myself out there more and more, and and the people just started coming. But it it was never my sphere of influence necessarily. I did everything sort of opposite and backwards to what they tell you to do, like a typical salesperson. Right. And you're still involved in the real estate transactions nowadays. So Mm -hmm. like if somebody wanted to sell their house and they call their regular team, would they meet with you? Mm -hmm. If they ask for me specifically, especially, yes. I still have my cell phone out there. I'm still working with sellers. Um, The buyers, I do tend to give to my teammates because they're pretty time-consuming. They can be. Um, I do take buyers that are past clients and friends and that kind of thing because I think that helps me stay in the loop of what's going on and I can kind of remember what it's like working with the buyers, but it's just not time effective for me necessarily and that's why I choose to to work with the sellers. And what a novel idea because one of the things that I think gets lost a lot of times in the business is when people start sort of growing their business, their brokerage, their team, um, they start getting disassociated with the industry. And so then you have people in sort of a position of um, a managing position, but they and they're making decisions that affect the day-to-day operations, but they're not involved with the day-to-day operations. So those decisions sometimes are sort of counterproductive to what their team or their salespeople want to do. And so one thing that I've always admired about you is that you seem to me like an agent that generally loves the interaction with the customer um, as opposed to someone that's selling real estate to sort of try to quickly get to that bridge where they can get away from production so that they no longer have to deal with the customers. Is that fair to say? That would be. I like the relationship part of it. I think that's so important when you're loving the one you're with. I mean, obviously that's what we do and we move on you know, to the next, but I think that even as passively as I do it, I do still stay in touch with my clients. I'm not the most um, uh, probably... I'm not the best at that, following up after the fact. Like the organ, more, most organized or calculated yeah, person. Yeah, mine's more like I'll send you a handwritten note because I am thinking about you, but I'm probably not going to pick up the phone and ask, you know, ask how you're doing or I'll interact with you on Facebook and that sort of thing. And it, to me, still tends to um, let them know that I'm thinking about them. They know that I'm busy just like they are, but I, I believe that you have to kind of continue to grow with the times and you communicate with people the way that they want to be communicated with. Now we text a lot. Um, I'm always available like that. I mean, that's the best way to, to kind of describe it, but you can't be everywhere at one time. And But I am big on the relationship part. I want them to feel like like they are my only client at that time and help guide them. And then that's what keeps them coming back and they refer their friends and their family and they, they feel like they know you. And, and really you do when you're at that that way in that transaction with them. They really rely on you to, to be the rock where they don't know where, you know which way is up. They're so stressed out. It's our job to kind of calm them down and be that motherly or fatherly voice that just says, it's okay, I've got this. Just let me take this from you for a minute. And when you say that, one of the things that jumps immediately to me is you've been in the industry for the better part of 17 years now. And in 17 years, we've, we've seen monumental change in the way that we conduct business. Um, 
a lot of it because of a natural evolution, but I think it's fair to say most of it because technology has just exploded in, in front of us. But you're still able to manage to keep those relationships with your customers and sort of do that. I don't like to call it hand-holding because that's not what it is, but just being that counselor for your customers all the way through the transaction. And um, for someone like you that started in 2002, how challenging is that with the times? Do you think technology has enabled you to be more proactive about being um, a relationship-based real estate agent, or it has hindered your ability to be a more relationship-based agent? I'd say it's bridged a gap. You know, you you can't... The way we started before was a lot on the phone. Then it was, you know, more email, then text. And, um, I mean, it sort of did take away. You don't have to go meet with your client as much. You know, you do everything via DocuSign or AuthentiSign or .loop. And that kind of takes away from that face-to-face. But I still have clients that I ask them, would you prefer me to come and meet with you? Here's what my schedule looks like. Or I might look a hot mess because I've had this or I've had that. I mean, I, I think that it's allowed me to do more business. So that has helped, obviously. Um, I can help more people. And I was really big in short sales, you know, where other people weren't. So I kind of evolved with the times. And I'll continue to do that as times change and kind of go through the market the different ways. And I, I just sort of embrace, you know, what's next and try to figure out how to make it work for me. It doesn't have to be. It's not a one-stop, you know, one-size-fits-all kind of model. Evidently, because you've made it work with um, sort of a mindset that's very different to what the industry standard is. Um, you say you, you were big during short sales, and, and that's not necessarily a choice that you make, like, I want to tackle short sales. It's like, short sales are here. You right. want to stay in the industry, mm-hmm. you know, you better become proficient at mm-hmm. it, and you did that, and you did that very well. What do you think is some of the next evolutions in the market um, from where you're standing now, from someone that has a sort of a... Um, a history within the industry, what are some changes that you think are sort of here to stay that we need to adapt to? Or um, the, And this is more heard by real estate professionals, so that's kind of what I'm gearing the question for. Right. Well, as they predict the market shifting and, and taking a different turn, I mean, we, I would have never said that the rock bottom would have hit as low as the rock bottom was in short sales then, and I would hope we never see anything like that again. I know... Um, what I have witnessed as of late, and I don't recall it ever really being as big of an issue as it is now, is property taxes. I mean, you're looking at homes with your buyer, and it's $2,000 a year, and all of a sudden when they buy, now it's 5000 You know, they're not really pre- prepared for that. So now a year or two in, now they're calling and saying, I need to sell my house. I can't afford my property taxes, or I can't afford the maintenance, and I can't, aff- I mean, it's just a different can't afford and at least now they can usually get out of their home without um, losing money or having to bring money to the table like we were during the short sale time they're not necessarily making the same amount of money that they could have but at least with a little bit of inflation you know or the little bit of increase in the profit or in the value of their home they do have some sort of profit to kind of get the wiggle room to where they need to be to get out from under it but it none of it's easy I mean it's a it's a tough time yeah, so one I've noticed that too. I've noticed people that bought a house maybe three, four years ago, and insurance has gone up, mm-hmm. and taxes has gone up. I mean, I just did a podcast with um, Taylor Young from um, 
from Urban Young Insurance, and he was talking about the, the hike on insurance prices in our area has been significant. So when you look at the, 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 the taxes <coughs> and you look at the insurance increases and maybe the HOA, like my HOA has gone up, I want to say like at least 30 bucks a month over the last two years. It's gone up 30 bucks per month over the last two years. Um, so certainly people are feeling all of those increases. Um, is there a particular technology trend that you think is going to affect this for agents in a particular way, positively or negatively? I mean, we have a lot of iBuyers. We have um, a lot of like virtual brokerage type situations. Like, do you see any of those affecting our day to day? I don't necessarily. I think people still want that. You know, we're not the Carvana. Mm-hmm. Of the and, and even that kind of makes me nervous. You know, I think people like the interaction with people. They want somebody that they can reach out and touch and feel and and call when they're upset. And and I don't. I think most people, I should say, want that. They want that human interaction. I, I just don't think you can take that equation out of it. You know, the complaints that I've heard from people that have gone through those things is that they can't find anybody in customer service. Nobody really cares. You're just a number to them. When you call in, it's not the same. And it's different if you're calling me to tell me someone left your lights on or someone left your door unlocked or someone let your cat out. I can empathize with you. If I'm at a call center, I couldn't care less. You're just what, you know, I'm going to hang up and take the next complaint or the next whatever. I, even from negotiating, I just don't see how you can take the person out and, and that, that's a really good point because one of the things that I don't think we talk about enough or we don't make enough of a point to make to consumers is our business is very much empathy driven because the things people have rated moving as the most inconvenient thing they can possibly do in their life sometimes ranking it above um, like a fear of death or public speaking so moving sucks I think we can sort of all agree to that which means the things that make people move oftentimes are not pleasant things. They're sort of forced decisions, um, whether it be divorce, whether it be a death in the family, whether it be a job transfer, whatever the case might be. There's a lot of empathy that is mm-hmm. involved in the transaction. And I think you've also been really good at doing that for your customers. You, someone that has worked with a lot of people in very special situations. And I think, and I think you're right. I mean, that's going to be very hard to, for that, you know, the person that can relate with a single mom to be able to talk to someone six states away about the sale of their home without having that sort of empathy and connection that has developed friendships for you. Right. We've had people that um, are out of state. Their family members have passed away. They don't have any way to get here. They can't. We had one, for instance, that was out um, in Groveland and the, the brother had passed away. We found out the septic tank had no bottom. I never even knew that that was even possible, but that had happened. So um, running out there, in the, not in the middle of the night, but in the middle of the afternoon to put a hose to the tank, then turning it off and doing all of these things, they wouldn't have had that if they'd gone through iBuyer or iOffer or you know whatever. Or maybe they wouldn't have had the hassle, like other people would say, I would just sell the house and I have to worry about that. You're, in turn, not only are you getting the personalized service with an actual human being, you're actually getting more money for your home and that's what we do. You know, it's not about the commission that we're going to make. It really, for me, is about helping the people. And that's why the short sales were so big for me. 
it wasn't about what I was going to get out, you know, out of that deal because my money was peanuts compared you know, to what these poor people were losing. But at that time, Bank of America, Chase, they were giving out $20,000 checks you know, for people that were losing their homes. They were getting FedEx envelopes saying, they'll pay me twenty grand to sell my house. I'm losing everything I've got. I mean, I had some people that didn't have anything, but if they didn't have me to facilitate, to empathize with them, to cry with them, to pat them on the shoulder, tell them it's going to be okay, take their phone calls, walk their dog while the house showed, you know, turn the water off or, you know, turn the heat on or whatever it was that was needed. You can't get that when you're, you know, when everything is just digital and technology driven. It's just a totally different Yeah, and I think... I think one of the mistakes that we make is that oftentimes we look at where we are in the market now and we say, well, you know, we can implement a, a fair level of technology to, to get things done at this point. But the real estate market has an ebb and flow to it. It doesn't stay there. And so the short sell market was a very good example of a, a market where, where it was absolutely necessary for real estate agents to be involved. Um, and like you said, oftentimes you would have a list, house listed for a year on a short sale and then it was denied in the 11th and a half hour and you never got paid for mm-hmm. all of the work that you did right up until, uh, mm-hmm. right up until that point. But it was very much a, a, a situation of people not getting enough education and guidance from the normal mainstream methods, being bombarded and attacked by all these other sort of like gimmicky things about how they could get out from under this house. And real estate agents really taking that role of the advisor and saying, no, no, we're going to we're going to take you and we're going to show you how you're going to do this and things are going to be okay and we'll stay in touch and we'll go ahead and sell your house again in the next four, five, six, mm-hmm. seven years whenever you're able to buy a house again. And I think, like you said, that's that's the part where it's not replaceable. That's the part that a lot, a lot of people don't see. If you do away with real estate professionals and then you slip into that market, people are going to be in real trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where's the trust? You know, who do you go to? Um that person's not going to be there when you need a, a HUD statement two years from now. You know, there's you're, you're missing out on all of the, I don't know, the real life things that you need a real person to be there. And then being established in your community and them knowing, you know, where you go to church, where you go to drink your coffee, that they're going to see you in a restaurant, that kind of thing. That's That has always appealed to me. And, and with the short sales, I mean, that was so huge because... They were losing everything they put their hard-earned money into. You know, some didn't lose as much as others. I had someone that had put down hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now they're selling their house for two hundred thousand when they, you know, put two hundred thousand dollars down. That's a hard pill to swallow, and they are so attached to that. But that one thing that was always good at the end of it, they were always saying thank you. They were grateful for getting through it without a foreclosure. And I think that's part of our industry's problem, too. Not everybody has the same training, which is unfortunate. And not everybody, not every salesperson or realtor, whatever, broker, um, really takes the time to educate themselves, to learn about these different facets, because we, we, short set, we shortchange most of our clients by not keeping up to date and what the industry is doing in the market. It's just like you said, being so disconnected from what's going on makes it where it, it, it gives some an unfair advantage, but then good people are missing out on business they should have when the other ones get it and they have a bad experience. That's when they go to someone that doesn't matter, like I offer or I buy or... And that's, a, that's sort of a fascinating topic to me because they, I've always been drawn to the idea of um, 
I love the freedom within the real estate community and the freedom. When I say that, I mean the freedom to seek out the training that you find most relevant to your business, as opposed to, you know, when you go to college for a particular degree, you may be taking classes on subjects that are not related to what you're going to be doing for a living. And so I appreciate that freedom, the freedom to seek out information. Um, the flip side to that, unfortunately, is that I've had to change my mind on that and say, I appreciate the freedom, but, and the but keeps getting bigger and bigger. Like you say, there is no standardized training mm-hmm. on the re- in the real estate industry. There's a standardized way that you get licensed, right. but that that's just to sort of keep you out of trouble, kind of, right. but it's not the way that you go forth in your career. Then you rely on brokers to do the training. You rely on your local boards to do the training. You rely on the people that run your office for for the training. Do you think, I mean, if we're like just spitballing, do you think it would be good to have some standardized training maybe, you Mm -hmm. know, like create a curriculum that has some standardized training for people that are actually in the industry out there with customers every day? Mm -hmm. I think that right now we have too much of um, opinion. What do you perceive this statement to mean? Inspection periods. You know, if it says, like, why can't it just be more clear? If it says 15 days or escrow, three days, five days, whatever, if it's not specifically saying business day starts the next day at, you know what I mean? Yeah, hard Make it more specific so that it's not a question and it's not a what did Mario think it was or what did April think it was or what day did I get X, Y, Z or you know, inspection periods, what time do they really end? And when did you get it in your email? And, oh, I didn't get that email. Maybe it went to my junk. Maybe I never saw it. You know, having something in place where you have to have a, a red receipt when you send a contract or some sort of something in place to really monitor so that you don't have this willy-nilly, you know, I... Yeah, there's a lot of ambiguity in what we yes. do. And... and People, the common person that's not in the industry listening to this is saying, well, contracts are in black and white. And they are in a way, but then we've, if you've done this long enough or enough times, you realize that the black and white um, also can be blurred. And so there's that aspect of it that if, if the forms were a little more comprehensive and they were a little more specific about certain areas that could be misinterpreted, um, things would be a little bit easier. But then there also, there's also the aspect of how do you conduct yourself in business? Like, mm-hmm. um, what's a reasonable amount of time to respond a question from one of your customers? Um, there's nothing that really guides that. Everybody sort of does their own thing. Right. What's a reasonable amount of time um, for you to call for uh, requesting an inspection? Um, uh, what's a reasonable amount of time to... Um, request a showing on a house or to barge into somebody's house without requesting a showing. All the things that we know happen day in and day out that, you know, a lot of times I want to say, darn it, that agent just is not doing the right thing. But a lot of times I just say they're probably not being taught better. Right. We have the tools. You know, with your MLS dues, you have showing time. Use it. Learn how to use the programs that you already are paying for. Showing time is probably one of the cheapest things you can buy. It's like $29 a month, maybe. And they will call your sellers and set up your showings for you. You don't have to touch it, especially the ones that have tenants in them that none of us really want to chase down. And you know just as well as I do. 
I'm sitting here with you, so I can't answer my phone. So if someone wants to show one of my listings, God forbid they're trying to reach me right now. Sure. You know, I don't know how many text messages I'm going to have to return or phone calls to return. Why would I want to take on that burden? Why not just give that up? And agents, first of all, don't know the little bit of the expense that it is. So they already don't follow through and try to check on that and try to use some of this technology to leverage themselves, which would make sense. So if you're not part of a big brokerage or a team or something that can kind of take that off of you, that's a perfect example. But we don't know how to use what, we, what we've already been given. Realtors aren't really taught how to look through MLS. They're going to Zillow or Realtor.com and then calling whoever and not realizing that, that they're not getting the listing agent. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things that go on with, with agents. And it's like you said, if you don't have... To me, it should be an ethics violation for not communicating well, but they don't teach you that. Yeah, and I, I think all of these things were very well-intentioned to begin with, but then there's sort of um, someone decides to sort of run amok with them. And then I think the perfect example, and is one that I, was, I discussed in the podcast with Tara, was um, how many licensees... Um, are enough for a broker. Like the state of Florida evidently thought that we should have a broker and that that broker should be sort of overseeing the activities of real estate associates, sales agents. Um, but there isn't anything that says, you know, they should oversee up to 250 licensees or up to whatever the number is. The number was left blank because at the time when this was crafted, maybe the technology wasn't there and it was just hard to conceive how someone could manage more than 40. Or because the mark, because the industry was very localized, you didn't really think, well, the same broker is going to have offices, you know, from Miami-Dade County all the way to Duval County across the state. Like, that was not something that was conceived at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of these things are very well-intentioned when they are put together, but perhaps it's definitely time for an update. I, I, I really... I really got to sleep dreaming of the day that we have a standardized curriculum to go through. So the real estate agents sort of get their license and they get put through this curriculum where they learn showing time, where they, um, where they learn how to use all these tools, where, where they learn how to do a really good market analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're graded on their ability to do a market analysis, just sort of the same way that you go to school and you learn by repetition and by trial and error. And, you know, and, and, and learn all these things that we need to know in order to, um, to run our business and then be able to work with consumers. But the way that it works right now is sort of like you get licensed, you go under a brokerage, you start working with consumers, and then you start all these other things hopefully start trickling into your life, right. but maybe not, you know, maybe because there's no requirement for it. Maybe, maybe they don't trickle into your life and right. you don't learn them. Right. Surveyors, appraisers, they all have to be understudies, plumbers, electricians. We give people a real estate license after a week or in less than 30 days, they can be totally licensed out selling real estate, helping people make big, huge financial decisions. And they don't even know what they're doing. And they don't even think about what the after, you know, what the fallout could be if they did something wrong. I mean, that's probably one of the biggest things. People trust you. And if you don't really know what you're doing, that could be bad. I mean, people, the, the agents now don't look at it as maybe partnering up with someone that's been in the industry a little bit, but you're also, they're trusting you as a professional that you've been in the industry for a long time and, and they don't know what they don't know until 
you know, till they're more experienced and they're like, oh my gosh, I thought they knew everything and they knew so little. I think that's, if we just had a better, I don't know, our bottom line or our standard of whatever was a little bit higher, it doesn't have to be that much, but but really a little bit higher would be really awesome and, and treat people like you would want to be treated. Yeah, and I think, that, you know, you nailed a solution that I've talked about and I've thought of in the past. Being an understudy is probably one of the easiest, simplest way to address this is by saying, is by saying to newly licensed agents, hey, when you're newly licensed, your work has to be supervised and signed off. Like every time you write an offer, it needs to be signed off mm-hmm. by this other person who has to evaluate it before it goes out of your email. Um, and you know, maybe have just like the offers a few other steps that that a broker has to absolutely be involved without being able to replace themselves with some like remote assistance somewhere to do it for them. They have to do it themselves. And um, and then saying to brokers, hey, you want to have a thousand agents? Wonderful. If you want to have a thousand agents, here's the deal. You still have to meet with them one-on-one. You still have to sign off on all their work. And mm-hmm. by the way, the standard of accountability is going to change and we're going to make it more lopsided on you so that it creates additional responsibility for those brokers that are currently running sort of like a gym membership mm-hmm. model where they're just charging 60 bucks a month to 100 right. people that don't show up to the office. Mm-hmm. That would stop a lot. Uh, hopefully, right? Mm-hmm. I would think so. I would, I would think, think so. so. I can tell you just having my little office, someone said to me, well, if you get 25 agents, I'll come in and I'll train and I'll do this and I'll do that. I said, why 25? What if I only had 15? But I had 15 good ones. Why would I need 25? Oh, well, yeah, I guess you wouldn't need 25. Like the crowd. Yeah, and I'm like, do you, need, do you need that big of an audience? Because I would think you should be okay if I have four people here. But if they're producing 20 million a piece or whatever because of the leverage and the things that we can provide, why wouldn't that be beneficial to you? Why do you need the larger number? And that kind of resonated with me when you talk about the ones that are doing exactly like what you say. You don't have to have, it's not about the size of your office when you can't, you cannot maintain those agents. That came up at a um, young professional board that I was at with um, Rouse recently. Yeah, I think that's one thing that doesn't get emphasized enough is retention. Like, what do you do to retain mm-hmm. good people with you? But I think there's going to be also a moment of reckoning in the industry. There's going to be two types of real estate offices. There are going to be the real estate offices that really emphasize the customer service that have a track record and, and a minimum standard that you're going to be able to go to like www.aprilsoffice.com and you're going to see April's office standard of service is, you know, we do this many, you know, um, listings and we, every one of our listings is serviced with, you know, drone and aerial and professional photography. Every one of our listings is receiving a staging consultation. Every one of our listings gets put in social media in, a, in an advertisement. That's good that gets pushed to at least 10,000, you know, like a standard, Mm -hmm. an actual quantifiable standard. Mm -hmm. And then there's going to be the other offices. The other offices will not have a standard. The other offices, it's going to have the agents that are perhaps not being as proactive about their education as they could be. And people are going to be able to sort of pick, pick what they, what's more convenient for them at that Mm -hmm. time. And I think I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. I've just said that recently to a seller who the commission would have been like $58,000, let's say. And I said, so you can give your money to this person or you can give your money to me, assuming I'm going to sell it because that's my goal. 
what are they doing compared to what I'm doing to be proactive about selling your house? The money's the same. So where would you like to see, you know, I'm actually spending money to get your home to sell faster. Your home's going to sit if you're with XYZ because of the, I mean, the resources just aren't there sometimes, you know, comparing to from a Cobalt Banker or Keller Williams or, um, gosh, I can't even think of the other ones now, ERA, um, Century 21, those types of brokerages, they buy into that because they're, you know, it's like a blanket, you know, everything's already paid for and, and that's part of your fees and your services and your dues. And then when you have little whoeverrealty.com, whatever that is, you're depending on that one particular person to do the same exact thing that a bigger brokerage does. And you just assume that across the board that they all do it. And that's not necessarily the case. I have a $600,000 listing that I did not ever expect to sell as quickly as it did. Within two days, it had, it had I don't know, three showings. Then within the first week, we had an offer. They rejected it, and I wanted to cry. I was like, take your first offer. Sometimes that's the best offer. It could be six months before we get yeah. one, and we may never get another one. A week later, they got closer to their asking price, and they're super happy. I never saw that coming. $600,000? Those homes aren't exactly flying off the shelves around here. But again, with the marketing and the resources and the things that you've got, they're thanking me, which I expected the phone call to go a little differently. Oh, we underpriced our house. You sold it too fast. But they said specifically the marketing, the photographs, the way that it was presented really hands down. Yeah. I mean, we are able to put the houses, especially Florida is a big example of this. And the reason I say Florida is I don't know how many people are moving from other places to you know some other states but there is certainly a ton of people moving into florida mm-hmm. so they start their home buying experience in michigan in new york right. in new jersey in puerto rico in colombia mm-hmm. you know in england they're starting their search somewhere else and right. so the good news is because of the you know social media we are able to show them this the the the, the homes that are in our local market mm-hmm. in their house right um, the bad news is not everyone takes a proactive approach in spending the necessary resources to make that happen. Mm-hmm. So just because social media exists, it doesn't mean your house is going to be there. Right. Just because someone has access to Zillow, it doesn't mean that the, that every listing agent has the same amount of exposure and every home marketed in Zillow has the same right. amount of exposure mm-hmm. to everybody. You know, if if the listing agent is doing a virtual tour and a 3D tour and professional photography and they have a premier agent and all these things, all of these things are going to help the exposure that your listing gets in all these other areas as right. well. Um, I, I think hopefully people listening to this got a lot of good information out of it. Um, I think you are one of the agents that I always look up to. Um, I love the way that you present yourself for your customers. And I, you know, if, if my grandma had to sell their house and I lost my real estate license, you would probably be my short list oh, of agents to refer um, because I, I, I truly know um, how much you care for people when you're thank working with them. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for doing this and well, we'll do it again. Thank you for having me. I can't wait. Thank, thank you so much. You.